Chapter 8 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life, Volume 3, by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, The Crisis. Hester sat still after Harry had left her as if she had been frozen to stone. But stone was no fit emblem of a frame which was tingling in every nerve, or of a heart which was on fire with horror and anguish and black bewilderment. The look which Harry could not understand, which stopped him in what he was saying, and which even now he could not forget, was still upon her face. She was contemplating something terrible enough to bring a soul to pause, a strange and awful solution of her mystery, and the first glance at it had stunned her. When she had assured him that Edward was coming back that night, a hurried note which she had received that morning seemed to unfold itself in the air before her, where she could read it in letters as of fire. It was written on a scrap of paper, blurred as if folded while the ink was still wet. The moment has come that I have so long foreseen. I am coming home tomorrow for a few hours. Meet me at dusk under the holly at the Grange Gate. The most dangerous place is the safest. It must be for ever or no more at all. Be ready. Be calm. We shall be together, my only love. E.V. This was how she knew that he was coming back. God help her. She looked in Harry's face with an instantaneous realization of the horror of it, of the falsehood that was implied, of her own sudden complicity in some monstrous wrong. I know he is coming home tonight. What was it that turned Medusa into that mask of horror and gave her head its fatal force? Was it the appalling vision of some unsuspected abyss of falsehood and treachery suddenly opening at her feet, over which she stood arrested, turned into an image of death, blinding and slaying every spectator who could look and see? Hester did not know anything about classic story, but she remembered vaguely about a face with snaky locks that turned men to stone. She told Harry the truth, yet it was a cruel lie. She herself, though she knew nothing and was tortured with terror and questionings, seemed to become at once an active agent in the dark mystery, a liar, a traitor, a false friend. Harry looked at her with concern and wonder, seeing no doubt that she was pale, that she looked ill, perhaps that she was unhappy, but never divining that she was hoping in a fatal deceit against her will, contrary to her every desire. He did not doubt for a moment what she said or put any meaning to it that was not simply in the words. He never dreamt that Edward's return was not real, or that it did not at once satisfy every question and set things, if not right, yet in the way of being right. He drew a long breath of relief. That was all he wanted to know. Edward come back again at the head of affairs. Everything would resume its usual course. To hear him say, then that's all right, and never to say a word to feel herself gazing in his eyes. Was it with the intention of blinding those eyes and preventing them from divining the truth? Or was it in mere horror of herself as the instrument of a lie, of him, him whom she would fain have thought perfect, as falsehood incarnate? There was a moment when Hester knew nothing more, when, though she was on fire and her thoughts like flame, lighting up a wild world of dismay about her, she yet felt as if turned into stone. The note itself, when she received it, in the quiet freshness of the morning, all ordinary and calm, her mother scarcely awake as yet, 
The little household affairs just beginning, those daily processes of cleaning and providing without which no existence can be, had been agitation enough. It had come to her like a sudden sharp stroke, cutting her loose from everything, like the cutting of a rope which holds a boat, or the stroke that severs a branch. In a moment she was separated from all that soft established order, from the life that had clasped her all round as if it would hold her fast forever. Her eyes had scarcely run over those hurried lines before she felt a wild sensation of freedom, the wind in her face, the gurgle of the water, the sense of flight. She put out her hands to screen herself, not to be carried off by the mere breeze, the strong blowing gale of revolution. A thrill of strange delight, yet of fright and alarm, ran through her veins. The flood of her sensations overwhelmed her. Its suddenness, its nearness, its certainty brought an intoxication of feeling. All this monotony to be over, a new world of adventure, of novelty, of love, and daring and movement, and all to begin tonight. These thoughts mounted to her head in waves. And as the minutes hurried along and the world grew more and more awake, and Mrs. John came downstairs to breakfast, the fire in Hester's veins grew hotter and hotter. Tonight, in the darkness, forever or no more at all. It seemed incredible that she could contain it all and keep her secret and make no sign. All this time, no question of it as a matter on which she must make up her mind, and in which there was a choice, had come into her thoughts. She was not usually passive, but for the moment she received these words as simple directions, which there could be no doubt of her carrying out. His passion and certainty took possession of her. Everything seemed distinct and necessary, the meeting in the dusk, the hurried journey, the flight through the darkness. For great excitement stops as much as it accelerates the action of the mind. Her thoughts flew out upon the wind, into the unknown, but they did not pause to discuss the first steps. Had he directed her to do all this at once, in the morning instead of in the dusk, she would have obeyed his instructions instinctively, like a child, without stopping to inquire why. But this mood was changed by the simplest of domestic arguments. Mrs. John, fresh and smiling in her black gown and her white cap, came down to breakfast. Not a suspicion of anything out of the ordinary routine was in Mrs. John's mind. It was a lovely morning. The sunshine pleased her as it did the flowers, who hold up their heads to it and open out and feel themselves alive. Her chair was on the sunny side of the table, as it always was. She liked to sit in it and be warm by it. She began to talk of all the little household things as she took her tea, of how the strawberries would soon be cheap enough for jam. That was the one thing that remained in Hester's mind years after. In a moment, while her thoughts were full of a final and sudden flight, that little speech about the jam and the strawberries brought her to herself. She felt herself to come back with a sudden harsh jarring and stumbling to solid ground. The strawberries, she said, looking at her mother with wild eyes of dismay, as if there had been something tragic in them. In about a fortnight, my dear, they will be quite cheap enough, Mrs. John said with a contented nod of her head. In a fortnight, a fortnight, a century would not mean so much. A fortnight hence, what would the mother be thinking? Where would the daughter be? Then there came to Hester another revelation as sudden, as all-potent as the first, that it was impossible, 
that she must be mad or dreaming. What? Fly? Go away? Disappear? Whatever might be the word. She suddenly laughed out her mother could not tell why, dropping a china cup, over which Mrs. John made many lamentations. It broke a set. It was old Worcester worth a great deal of money. It had been her grandmother's. Oh, my dear, I wish you would not be so careless. But of anything else that was broken, or of the mystery of that sudden laugh which corresponded with no expression of mirth on Hester's face, Mrs. John knew nothing. Impossible! Why, there was not a word to be said, not a moment's hesitation. It could not be. How could it be? Edward, a young man full of engagements, caught by a hundred bonds of duty, of work, of affection. Why, if nothing else, of business, to whom it was difficult to be absent for a week, who had sometimes to run up and down to town in twenty-four hours, that he should be able to go away. He must mean something else by it, she said to herself. The words must bear a second signification. And she herself, who had no business or duty or tie of any sort except one, but that one enough to move heaven and earth, her mother, who in a fortnight would be making the jam if the strawberries were cheap enough. The thought moved her to laughter again, a laugh out of a strangely solemn, excited countenance. But this sudden revulsion of feeling had given the whole matter a certain grotesque mixture of the ludicrous. It demonstrated the impossibility of any such overturn with such a sarcastic touch. Hester said to herself that she must have been nearly making some tragical mistake and compromising her character for good sense forever. Of course it was impossible. Whatever he meant by the words, he did not mean that. After breakfast, when she was alone and had read the note over again, and could find no interpretation of it but the first one, and had begun to enter into the agonies of a mental struggle, Hester relieved the conflict by putting it down on paper, writing to Edward, to herself in the first instance, through him. She asked him what he meant, what other sense there was in his words which she had not grasped. He go away? How could he? With Catherine trusting in him, with Vernon's depending upon him, with his work and his reputation and so much at stake, and she with her mother. Did not he see that it was impossible? Impossible! He might say that she should have pointed this out before, but she had never realized it. It had been words to her, no more, and it was words now, was it not? Words that meant something beyond her understanding, a test of her understanding, but she had no understanding, it appeared. Hester thought that she would send this letter to await him when he reached the Grange, and then she would keep his appointment and find him ready to laugh at her, as she had laughed at herself. She put it hurriedly into her desk when Harry appeared, with a guilty sense that Harry, if he saw it, would not only divine whom it was addressed to, but even what it said. But Harry was no warlock, and though he saw the hurried movement and the withdrawal of the papers, never asked himself what it was. But after Harry was gone, she wrote no more. She gave one glance at the pages full of anxious pleading, of tender remonstrances, of love and perplexity, then closed the lid upon them as if it had been the lid of a coffin, and locked it securely. They were obsolete and out of date, as if her grandmother had written them. They had nothing to do with the real question. They were as fictitious as if they had been taken out of a novel. All that she had said was foolishness, like the driveling of an idiot. Duty, 
she had asked triumphantly. How could he disengage himself from that? How could she leave her mother behind when, great heaven, all that he wanted was to shake duty off and get rid of every tie? Harry's revelation brought such a contrast before her that Hester could but stare at the two pictures with dumb consternation. On one side, the bank in gloomy disarray, its ordinary course of action stopped, the business all wrong, poor people besieging its doors for their money, the clerks bewildered and not knowing what to do, and poor Harry, faithful but incapable, knowing no better than they. On the other, Edward, in all a bridegroom's excitement with the woman he loved beside him, traveling far away into the night, flushed with pleasure, with novelty, with the success of his actions, whatever they were, and with the world before him. It seemed to Hester that she saw the two scenes, although she herself would have to be an actor in one of them if it ever came to pass. She saw them to the most insignificant details. The bank, Vernon's, that sheet-anchor of the race for which she herself felt a hot partisanship, a desire to build it up with the prop of her own life, if that would do it, full of angry and miserable people cursing its very name, while the fugitives, with every comfort about them, were fast getting out of sight and hearing of everything that could recall what they had left. Deserter, traitor, were these the words that would be used? And was he going to fly from the ruin he had made? That last most terrible question of all began to force itself to her lips, and all the air seemed to grow alive and be filled with darting tongues and voices and hissings of reply. And then it was that Hester felt as if her very hair began to writhe and twist in living horror about her shoulders, and that her eyes, wide with fright and terror, were becoming like Medusa's, things that might turn all that was living to stone. But to think through a long summer day is a terrible ordeal, and many changes and turns of the mind are inevitable. It was a pitiless long day, imagine it, in June when not a moment is spared you. It was very bright, all nature enjoying the light. The sun seemed to stand still in the sky as on that day when he stopped to watch the slaughter in Agilon, and even when he disappeared at last, the twilight lasted and lingered as if it would never be done. Esther had put away her long letter of appeal, but she wrote a brief, almost stern note which she sent to the Grange in the early evening. It ran thus. Harry has told us that all is going wrong at the bank, that you are wanted urgently there, that only you can set things right. You cannot have known this when you wrote to me. I take it for granted this changes everything, but I will come tonight to the place you name. She sent her note in the afternoon and then waited like a condemned criminal, faintly hoping still for a reprieve, for perhaps to know this would stop him still. Perhaps he had not known it. She went out just after sunset, escaping not without difficulty from her mother's care. "'It is too late for you to go out by yourself,' Mrs. John said. "'I do not like it. You girls are so independent.' I never went beyond the garden by myself at your age. I am only going to the common, Hester said with a quiver in her voice. She kissed her mother very tenderly. She was not in the habit of bestowing caresses, so that this a little startled Mrs. John. But she returned it warmly and bade her child take a shawl. Did Hester think she might yet be carried away by the flood of the other's will, against her own, that she took her leave so solemnly? 
It was rather a sort of imaginative reflection of what she might have been doing if she had gone but a little way when she met Captain Morgan. "'Why did you not tell me you were going out?' he said. "'I have tired myself now. I can't go with you. I have been inquiring about the midnight train for Emma, who did not get off this morning after all.' "'Is she going by the midnight train?' Hester asked with a sense of inconvenience in it that she could hardly explain. "'Yes, if it is possible to get her off,' said the captain. "'But, my dear, it is too late for you to walk alone.' "'No, oh, oh, no, it is only for this once,' Hester cried with involuntary passion unawares. "'My dear child,' said the old man. He was disturbed by her looks. "'I will go in and get an overcoat and join you directly, Hester, "'for though I am tired, I would rather be overtired "'than that you should walk alone.' The only way that Hester could defend herself was to hurry away out of sight before he came out again. She had a dark dress, a veil over her face. Her springy step, indeed, was not easy to be mistaken, nor the outline of her alert and vigorous figure, which was so much unlike loitering. She got away into the fields by a lonely path, where she could be safe, she thought, till the time of her appointment came. What was to happen at that appointment she could not tell. Excitement was so high in her veins that she had no time to ask herself what she would answer him if he kept to his intention, or what she should do. Was it on the card still that she might follow him to the end of the world? Edward had arrived late, only in time for dinner. He got Hester's note and read it with an impatient exclamation. "'The little fool,' he said to himself, "'as if that was not the very—' and tore it into a thousand pieces.' He dressed for dinner very carefully, as was his wont, and was very pleasant at table, telling Catherine various incidents of his journey. "'You must make the most of me while you have me,' he said, "'for I have a pile of letters in my room that would make anyone ill to look at. I must get through them tonight. There may be something important. It is a pity Harry doesn't take more of a share.' "'I think, for my part, it is one of the best things about him,' said Catherine." that he always acknowledges your superiority. He knows he will never set the Thames on fire. And why should he, said Edward? A man may be a very good man of business without that. I wish he would go into things more. Then he would always be ready in case of an emergency. What emergency? said Catherine, almost sharply. You are too far-seeing, I think. Oh, I might die, you know, said Edward with an abrupt laugh. Anything might happen, she said, but there are many more likely contingencies to be provided for. What is that? she added quickly. The butler had brought in and presented to Edward upon a large silver salver, which called attention to it, a small white square object. Return tickets, ma'am, said the butler solemnly, as dropped out of Mr. Edward's overcoat. Return tickets? You are not going back again, Edward. "'I am always running up and down, Aunt Catherine. "'I constantly take return tickets,' he said quietly, "'pocketing the tickets and giving the butler a look "'which he did not soon forget. "'For there were two of them which Marshall could not understand. "'As for Catherine, this gave her a little pang. "'She could not tell why. "'But Edward had never found so much to tell her before. "'He kept her amused during the whole time of dinner. "'Afterwards he took her upstairs into the drawing-room,' and put her into her favourite chair, and did everything that a tender son could have done for her comfort. 
It was growing dusk by this time, and he had not been able to keep himself from giving a glance now and then at the sky. "'Do you think we are going to have a storm, Edward?' Catherine asked. "'I think it looks a little like it. You had better have your window shut,' he said. He had never been more kind. He kissed her hand and her cheek when he went away, saying it was possible, if his letters were tough, that he might not come upstairs again before she went to bed. "'Your hand is hot,' she said. "'My dear boy, I'm afraid you are a little feverish.' "'It has been very warm in town, and I am always best, you know, in country air,' was what he said. She sat very quietly for some time after he had left her, then, seeing no appearance of any storm, rose and opened her window again. He was almost too careful of her. As she did so, she heard a faint sound below, as of someone softly closing the door. Was it Edward going out, notwithstanding his letters? She put herself very close to the window to watch. He had a small bag in his hand and stood for a moment at the gate, looking up and down. Then he made a quick step beyond it, as if to meet someone. Catherine watched, straining her eyes through the gloom. She was not angry. It brought all her fears, her watchfulness, back in a moment. But if it was true that he loved Hester, of course he must wish to see her. If she was so unmaidenly, so unwomanly as to consent to come out like this to meet him. And was it at her own very door that the tryst was? This roused Catherine. She heard a murmur of voices on the other side of the great holly. The summer night was so soft, every sound was carried by the air. Here was her opportunity to discover who it was. She did not pause to think, but taking up her shawl in her hand, threw it over her head as she stole downstairs. It was black and made her almost invisible, her dress being black too. She came out at a side door, narrowly escaping the curiosity of Marshall. The bright day had fallen into a very dim evening. There was neither moon nor stars. She stole out by the side door, avoiding the path. Her footsteps made no sound on the grass. She crossed the gravel on tiptoe and wound her way among the shrubberies till she stood exactly under the holly tree. The wall there was about up to a man's shoulders, and it was surmounted by a railing. She stood securely under the shadow of it, with her heart beating very loudly, and listened to their voices. Ah, there could be no doubt about it. She said to herself that she never had any doubt. It was the voice of that girl which answered Edward's low, passionate appeals. There are some cases in which honour demands a sacrifice scarcely possible. She had it in her power to satisfy herself at once as to the terms upon which they were, and what they expected and wished for. She had no intention of eavesdropping. It was one of the sins to which Catherine was least disposed, but to turn back without satisfying herself seemed impossible now. End of chapter 8. Reading by Anne Erickson, Toronto.